Amen. Would you please open up your Bibles and find your way to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is where we will be this morning. The title of my sermon is Through Many Dangers. Through Many Dangers. This, of course, comes from the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. There is that powerful line in the hymn, Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. We are going to be jumping into the opening of Exodus, where we will see the people of God about to approach many, many dangers. They are going to enter, in fact, into a time of danger. So I felt that this was a fitting descriptive uh, title for today's message. Through many dangers, we will be in Exodus chapter 1, and I will make reference to chapter 2, so you'll want to have that in front of you for today's message. The beginning chapters of Exodus provide an origin account for the great prophet Moshe, or as we commonly refer to him in North American English, we say Moses. So Moshe or Moses, if you've heard about Moshe, if you've heard about Moses and you've never really known, you know, the backstory, if you're new to the Bible, you've heard about this guy Moses and you said, I want to know more about this guy or whatever, this is the place to study the book of Exodus, in particular the opening chapters. It lets you know the backstory of where he came from. It's an origins account of, of his life and so much more. As a kid, I watched the original Star Wars movies. Those came out as a kid in, in the 70s. I watched those Star Wars movies and, you know, you see the characters and you're introduced to them. In particular, as a kid, you know, you're fascinated by the bad guy and in comes Darth Vader, you know, with the one lung, you know, crazy asthma or whatever he's got going on. And he's, there's Darth Vader, you know, as a kid, whoa, Darth Vader. And, you know, you kind of wonder, like, what's the story on this guy? Like, why is he so angry? You know, what's the deal? And then in the late 90s, George Lucas comes out with Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace. And we learned all about, you know, Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker. And we got, we got to see the origins account of, you know, where this guy came from. And, you know, we met some curious characters like Jar Jar Binks that almost ruined the movie. But whatever, you know. And, and, and so you, you understand what it is culturally from movies and books and whatnot to have origins accounts. So for those of you who have heard about the prophet Moshe or Moses, uh, this morning we're going to learn about his origins with the beginning of the book of Exodus. This is the place to be if you want to have that, you know, Phantom Menace episode one and understand who the prophet Moses is. Uh, before we begin reading the text of Exodus, let me give you some context to the ancient book. Uh, the, the Hebrews referred to the book of Exodus as Sefer Shemot, which literally means the book, Sefer of names, Shemot. We get our title, Exodus, from the Greek text of, of Sefer Shemot. Uh, the Greeks refer to Sefer Shemot as Exodus. Ex is, uh, it, it's a, it means out of, ek means out of. And hadas uh, means uh, the path or the way. So ex adas means the way or the, the path or the way out. Ek, out, hadas, the path, the way out, Exodus. This is a fitting title, Exodus, for the book because the book is about, not, it's not just an origins account about Moses, it's about the people of God and it's about God's way out, Exodus, for the people who were in Egypt, God's people, Israel, the descendants of Abram, who are in Egypt and they are facing many dangers as they will enter into a time of slavery, as we will see in the text. So they will be brought out of this in the book of Exodus, hence the title uh, Exodus. 
I will say more about the Hebrew title, Sefer Shemot. Uh, it is fitting when we get into the text itself, and so you'll, you'll see why the Hebrews refer to this book as Sefer Shemot. But for now, by way of background, we're getting into the text. Uh, I want to lay the foundation for us so as we start reading, we have some, some history and some theology in our minds before we just jump into the text. So historically, this book is written around the 1400s. Some scholars will date it around the 1200s, depending on the identity of the Pharaoh that we read about in Exodus, and I'll say more about that when we get to that in the text. The second book of the Hebrew Bible, Exodus, begins where the first book of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, left off. Uh, Genesis leaves off with God and his people and his promises to his people. In Genesis, we read about God's promise to an undeserving historical figure named Abram. Abram's an, a nomad, he's a trafficker, a sex trafficker, he's, he's sort of a dirty, dingy, kind of dirty, dingy nobody who's just nomading around and, uh, you, you know, you go, who is this guy? And then God comes to him, this undeserving man, God comes to him, Abram, and God saves him by his grace, and God gives Abram a new name, Abraham, which is a fitting name for him based on the promise that God gives to him who he saved, Abram. You see, God promised to make Abram a father of many. And that is literally what the new name that God had given to him means. Uh, Abraham means the father of many. Whereas the name Abram simply means an exalted or a high father. Av is the Hebrew for father. And Aram is, the, is a name for high or exalted or lofty. Uh, now, now that, there's some irony there in light of this, because not only was Abram unworthy, undeserving, he's a sex trafficker, he's a, he's a nobody, he's this kind of dark, mysterious character who God comes to, who God saves, who God gives this great promise to him and names him Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many, but his original name, Abram, is an ironic name because Abram, the exalted father, has no children. How are you an exalted or lofty father? You have no kids. And then comes the promise. Then comes the promise. God promises to Abram, Abraham, that he is going to give him children, many children. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. They sing in kids' church. He will have many sons, many children, many daughters. He will have progeny. The promise that is given to him, this salvation to this undeserving man that God gives to him, and the promise subsequently that he gives to him, isn't just about progeny, but it's also about a place. He promises that he's going to take his progeny to a place, the promised land, as we call it, a land of promise. It's not just about progeny and place, but the promise also includes prosperity. He's going to take the, the progeny to that place, and he's going to prosper them there, and it's not just about the progeny and the place and the prosperity, but it's also about peace, shalom. God is going to use those people in that place to bring about a blessing of the nations, a, a renewing of the nations. We read in the book of Genesis about the fall of the nations and, and the fall of humanity itself. And so you see, the Bible begins with this, this story about humanity. And it's not a, a story, it's, a, it's, it's actual history about the, hu the human condition and the fall of humanity. And Exodus picks this up and, and, and with this promise of, of God, he's going to fix this. He's going to remedy this. He's going to heal this. He's going to take the fallen nations and he's going to bring them back into peace through the promise that is given to the patriarch, Abraham, 
that he will have a progeny in that place that will have a particular prosperity that will bring peace to the nations. Now, in the context of the book of Genesis, you have to understand this to understand Exodus. In the context of the book of Genesis, this promise is huge. It, it comes on the heels of the fall of humanity. If you start in chapter 1, you begin moving, you get a few chapters in, and everything's a mess. It's not just Abraham who is unworthy. The whole creation is unworthy. And God yet, in His grace, in His mercy, He brings this promise. The Bible begins not just with the history of people, but it begins in a way with the history of science, we might say. It tells us the mystery behind what moderns refer to as the Big Bang or the cosmological singularity. We understand from science that the universe wasn't always here. It came into existence. Further, we understand from science that everything that comes into existence, everything that has a beginning, has a cause. This is the law of cause and effect. Where you see, uh, where you see effects, you see causes. So we understand from science that everything that has a beginning has a cause, and since the universe had a beginning, it must have a cause. And the Bible tells us who the cause is. It is not an impersonal force. It is a personal being, God, not just any old God, but the true and living God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons. This God who eternally dwells in three persons, in, in love, the Father loves His Son, the Son loves the Father, the Father loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Father, the Spirit loves the, the Son, the Son loves the Spirit. This, this being who is love creates the world and gives life to the world and pours His love on the creation. His love is unrequited. It's a very sad story. And humanity, creatures, rebel against Him. The giver of life responds very appropriately to this rebellion by taking back life. And so now there's death in the creation. There's dysfunction in the creation. Not just the taking back of biological life. We all, we all die. 10 out of 10 people die. And 10 out of 10 people die because 10 out of 10 people sin. So there's biological life that is, that is oozing out. There's, there is also our social and relational life that is falling apart as well. There's hurt. There's harm. There's sin. There's shame. There's guilt. But God, in His grace, comes into the creation. And, and he, he responds by saying, I'm going to remedy this. I'm going to fix this. And it starts with promises. He promises to, the, 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 to, to the, the father of creation, to Adam, to the mother of creation, that he was going to remedy this. He makes a promise to them. He promises to Noah. And now he promises to Abram, I'm going to restore this. I'm going to take you. You don't deserve this. I'm going to take you. I'm going to give you a progeny. I'm going to bring them to a place. I'm going to prosper them in spite of them. This is unconditional. This is unconditional love that he is lavishing on them. And they will prosper for the purposes of bringing peace and shalom to the creation. It's a, it's a reverse. It's a renewal. It's a, it's a redemption. So this is the theological context as you step into the book of Exodus. This gracious triune God who's responded to the, the creation's rebellion with, with mercy, who's responded with promise of this unconditional love, this unconditional plan that he will give to, to Abraham. And so the promise begins to unfold. Abraham has children. We read about Isaac and Jacob, Jacob and, and Jacob becomes Israel, the father of Israel, and he has sons, and they become the tribes of Israel. And we read of the historical figure Joseph, as you get to the end of the book of Genesis, you understand this because we're stepping into Exodus. Exodus comes after Genesis. It's important to have this context. And Joseph, in Joseph, we begin to see rumblings of the promise that was given to Abraham coming to fruition. The progeny has grown. 
We see glimpses of prosperity in them. But we don't see that they have come to the place yet. They are not in the place. They are not in the land of promise. They are in Egypt, as you see in front of you. You have a map. Now, before the place comes, the promised land, there would be peril. There would be many dangers, toils, and snares. There would be big trouble in little Egypt for God's chosen people. Now, this raises some questions for folks as you move into the end of Genesis and step into Exodus. You say, if these are God's chosen people, for Pete's sake, why are they suffering? Well, these are his chosen people. What, what sort of a father is this? Look at, look at how bad they have it. You know, if you, if you were a loving father, you wouldn't let your kids suffer in this way. Why are they suffering? Well, let me say that being chosen by God, receiving the promises of God, does not exempt us from suffering. This is one of the great evils of the modern pros prosperity gospel that is peddled today. That, that if you follow after God, you're going you're gonna to get this, and you're going to have this good life and all this stuff. And, and you know, uh, No, no, that's not the case. This is not what the scriptures teach. Being chosen does not exempt you from suffering. The world is falling apart. The creation rebelled against God. You and I are a part of that rebellion. If, if you have been rescued by Christ, you, you still know that you're a member of the fallen human race. We deserve suffering. We absolutely deserve it. So anytime suffering comes our way, we must realize that we are far better off than we deserve, even when we suffer. I'm far better than I deserve. In fact, when people ask you, how are you doing, that's, that's a, a wonderful way to start a conversation. You know, how are you doing? The appropriate answer, of course, is like, fine. You know, even if you're not fine, oh, I'm, do I'm doing good, and how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good, and then you move on about your way or whatever. But just stop next time someone asks you and say, you know, I'm doing far better than I deserve. You'll get a look, and then boom, you can, you can share with them why, why that is the case. I've rebelled against God. I deserve nothing from God. I can't demand anything from God. And he saw fit to forgive me of what I have done. And he saw fit to rescue me and make me a part of his people. And it had nothing to do with me and everything to do with me, him. I, I, I'm far better off than I deserve. You see, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the people of Israel and Joseph and up, up to this point, they are going to enter many dangers, toils, and snares. But through it all, they are far better off than they deserve. Furthermore, in a fallen creation where things are in disarray and in dysfunction and darkness, God reigns sovereignly over it. The, the devil and the darkness haven't managed to escape his meticulous providence. He is, he is using the suffering for his purposes. We read in Scripture in Romans 8.28 that God causes all things to work together to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Israel was called. Israel was chosen. Israel was elect. They are his people. And God is causing all of the things that we will read about in, in Egypt and throughout the history of his people all the way up to today. As you are a part of his people, if you have come to him, if you have repented of your sin, if you have been transformed by him, you are a part of that. And you need to be reminded that he has not promised that you will not have suffering in this life. But what he has promised is that he is using that for his purposes. Notice what this verse begins with. We know that. In other words, I'm, I'm not just taking a stab at this. I'm not guessing about this. I'm saying on good authority, inspired word of God, we know that God causes all things to work together for those who love God. God is sovereign. He is using it all. 
Why is he letting them suffer? Because he's using it all. The story of Moses is so loud and clear about this when you see the suffering that he goes through and how God uses it all. But as we're reading Exodus, we don't want to reduce the story of Exodus to an origins account, the way episode one might make you geek out about, you know, Darth Vader, but there's so much more going on. This is not a book that is about a hero named Moses. This is any more than Genesis is a book about a hero named Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. No, these men are undeserving. Moses, just like Abram, was a man who didn't have it coming. It was by God's grace that he was chosen to, to be used as an instrument of God in the way that he is used in his life and the way that he is recorded in Scripture for pointing to things that are far greater, which we will get to in the message this morning. All of that to say, by way of introduction as we're getting into this text, we are not entering into a hero story. We are entering into a, a people story that is about God's promises to a people. The hero of the story is God, and, and, and he has no one on stage but him. He is the hero. We uplift him as we read his word. We never want to reduce these, these, these texts of scripture into these, these hero accounts and you know, be, you be a Moses, be like Moses. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is to draw us into God, to draw us in repentance and faith, to draw us in anticipation for what God is doing through the ages to restore the fallen earth. In God's providence, God had his people, Israel, in Egypt, and this was a part of his promise. Seemingly, it is to prepare them for their mission as a priesthood nation for the world. The progeny would go to the place. Their prosperity isn't just an economic prosperity, it's a spiritual prosperity. They were to serve as a priesthood for the nations. That's how they bring peace to the nations. They have a temple, they're mediaries between the holy God of creation and the earth that has fallen. And so they're to call the nations and tell the nations who God is and be a light to the nations. We read this morning in our public reading of scripture, the light to the nations in Isaiah. They are to serve as a light to the nations. They are, they are to herald this, this God who is good and call people to come to him. That would be their role. That, that would be a role that would be prepared through a process of suffering. God would be refining them as, as a fire refines gold. God would be refining them through this suffering for this mission as the priesthood for the world. Romans 8, verses 18 through 21, I'll put it in front of you. The apostle writes, I consider the sufferings of this present time. They are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, the, 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 the text that's in front of you is, is going to help you understand. This text from Romans is going to help you understand theologically what's going on in this historical context as the people are facing suffering. Look, 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 the, the sufferings that they face aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to them. They'll receive, they'll receive the, the law. They'll, they'll go to Sinai. They'll, they'll see manifestations of God in the wilderness who will carry them. They'll, they'll have the tabernacle. They'll, they'll build the temple. They'll, they'll serve the purposes of God in a unique way that no people in the earth has ever experienced. And all of that is to point forward to the creation that was subjected to futility being renewed. 
The story of Genesis, the fall of the earth, a new earth that is to come, a resurrection of the dead, a restoration of all those who are in him, the glory of the children of God. And so as we see the suffering in the text, right, look at the sovereign plan of God that brings you to the first point on your outline, sovereignty and the people. God is, God is up to something. God is on the move. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, Jacob, and, 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 and they came, each one, from his household. Let's pause for a quick second here. Earlier I showed you that the Greeks referred to this book as Exodus, and I shared with you that the Hebrews referred to the book as Sefer Shemot. Remember what that means, Sefer Shemot. It means book, Sefer, and Shemot means what? Names. It is the book of names. In the English here you have, these are the names. You, you can see this is where Sefer Shemot comes from. In the original Hebrew, the text starts like this, Wa'ele Shemot, Wa'ele Shemot, which literally would be, and uh, these names, and these names. Uh, we could insert R, and these are the names, Wa'ele Shemot. The book begins with this Wa. Wa is a conjunction in the Hebrew. Uh, so you can translate it as and, or in the English translation uh, in front of me, we have now. But and, wa, is a really fitting way to translate the text because it's letting you know that the book is starting with an and, which is to say this is a continuation of something. And is a continuing. Wa is a continuing. This places the stress, the way that the book starts is with a continuity with Genesis. And, Exodus begins to say, look, this is the story of Genesis. Exodus isn't starting a new story. It's continuing a story. Wa, and. This is one story. Sefer Shemot is tied to Sefer Bereshit. You have the book uh, of names in front of you. It is flowing from the book of the beginnings, the book of Genesis. In my sermon, I've already tied these together by way of introduction, by telling you about who God is, telling you about creation, telling you about the fall of creation, telling you about Abram, telling you he wasn't worthy, telling you that God gave grace to him, God gave a promise to him, telling you about Isaac, telling you about Jacob, telling you about, uh, about Joseph. And this book starts, you need to have that context in mind. That's why I labored to give that to you by way of introduction. So the book opens with this conjunction, wa, to say this story is one story. In fact, scholars note that the wa and the first six words of this verse repeat the exact structure of the close of Genesis. We see it exactly in Genesis 46, verse 8, if you're taking notes. Genesis ends with the names, and Exodus begins with the names. Draw your eyes back at the text. Reuben, Simeon, verse 2, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, all the persons, the text says, all the persons who uh, came from the loins of Yaakov, they were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and his brothers of that generation, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Here we see the Abrahamic covenant coming to fruition. Remember the promise of progeny, that you're going to have sons. The fatherless, undeserving guy is going to become the father of this people. He's going to have tons of progeny. And here you see, the, you, you see that coming to fruition. You, the sons of Israel are increasing greatly. This, this is incredible. This is absolutely amazing. That promise that was given in, in, in the beginning, in that book of Genesis, it's starting to come. We're starting to see this progeny. Man, this is amazing. This is great. But wait, the plot thickens. Verse 8. 
now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we are. Now hang on, I, I need to make sure that I've, I've made mention of Joseph, but in passing, I need to make mention of Joseph to make sure everyone knows who Joseph is. So Exodus is continuing the story, as I've labored to say. In the book of Genesis, we meet the historic figure Joseph. Joseph saves the Jewish people and also the Egyptians from a time of famine. You can read about that in the book of Genesis. Uh, mind you, the Jewish people are his people. Joseph is Jewish. He's the 11th son of Jacob, Jacob. Uh, so Jacob as in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? So he's the 11th son, so this is his family. Uh, Joseph was raised up by God to become a person of influence in a high-ranking Egyptian official's uh, uh, office, known, uh, known as the figure Potiphar. And God gave Joseph very supernatural insight in some of the rumblings that were going on in the nation and stressful dreams that, that, that Potiphar was having. And God used all of that to help save the people from famine. That's the short story. And so the powers of the day were very grateful to the Jewish Joseph for his insights that, that, that God brought to the table to rescue the people of Egypt from famine and calamity and the like. Okay, so as, as I've said, that's the short version of the story. The longer version, of course, is filled with suffering. Joseph goes through great suffering, he goes through temptation, he goes through darkness, he goes through confusion. Going back to what I said earlier about Romans, about how, how God is using it all, about how God causes all things to work together. And in the account of Genesis, you see that so loud and clear. God was using the sufferings of Joseph, the injustice done to Joseph as a part of unfolding his plan. Look at, look at this quote from Genesis. On the lips of Joseph, Joseph said this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The suffering, the struggle, the pain, God was using it all for good. This was exactly what we saw in Romans 8.28. He causes all things to work together for the good. Genesis 50.20, God meant it for the good. This is, this is comforting. For any suffering that you're facing, of any variety this morning, church, that you can tell yourself, look, God is going to use whatever this relational hurt I'm going through, this bodily hurt I'm going through, this whatever hurt I'm going through, God is going to use this. I need to be patient. I need to, I need to be repentant. I need to be seeking Him. And I need to be running to Him in prayer for this because He will do His work. He is faithful, these texts are teaching us. Now let me place emphasis on his purposes, as I say that, and not our own. Uh, because often we go through hurt and we just want to get our way, and we can have a way of sort of baptizing it or mentally telling ourselves that we're in the right and God's on our side and the other person is wrong and whatever. This is for his purposes and not our own. As well, let me place emphasis on the word called to stress that it's about the calling and the providence of God. The scripture is reminding us of something that we ought never to forget, that God is in control. That said, we are prone to forget that. We are prone to fret over that. Uh, there is a saying, and it's an important one. I would encourage you to commit it to memory, and it's this. Never doubt in the darkness what God revealed in the light. When the darkness comes over us, we have a way of forgetting lessons that we learned in the light. We have a way of uh, becoming ungrateful. We have a way of of just failing to remember God's track record of faithfulness. Never doubt in the darkness what God has revealed in the light. Israel is about to enter into darkness. Joseph is gone, the text says, and they have forgotten his name. 
a new ruler is on the throne, and he wasn't feeling this ethnic group in his land. There's the term that, that is used in social sciences and even psychology, it's called ethnocentrism, where one particular ethnic group views itself as better than or over others. There was an ethnocentrism in the heart of this ruler, and he saw these people, and, and, and he said, no, I, don't, I don't like those people. Like ethnocentrism in our culture, it has a way of giving you a sense of superiority. It has a way of breeding a fear in you of others that you don't know. It gives you a fear of the foreigner. And our media, of course, plays into that so as to divide people. A fear of what doesn't look like you or sound like you or dress like you or think like you, not to mention worship like you. He goes, who are these people? Who do they worship? They don't sound like us. They don't talk like us. They're growing. They're, they're threatening us. They're in our borders. I don't know about these people. Verse 8, draw your eyes at the text. We read in verse 8, The new king over Egypt did not know, uh, did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, verse 9, Behold, the people uh, of the sons of Israel, they're, they're, they're mightier than we are. Come, verse 10, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. You see the fear? Who are these? Those people. Those people are threatening our nation. They're threatening our stability. We need to do something about those people. Joseph, who are these people? I don't know these people. I don't like these people. We've got to do something about them. It makes me think just in terms of uh, helping to understand, you know, what's going on here. I'm always looking for kind of modern parallels to help moderns understand the text, and it really makes me think about World War II. It makes me think about the Pacific Coast in particular in World War II. To back up a little bit more, in the late 1800s, there was a boom of Japanese immigrants in the Pacific Coast. There was a, a bunch of Japanese immigrants who were coming to the Pacific Coast, and they're, they're, they're becoming citizens, and they're working hard, and they're becoming a part of this, you know, sort of westward journey to make a better life for yourself. White European Americans resisted them. Uh, they, they looked down on them. They segregated them. They opposed them. They oppressed them. There were fears of these Asians taking over white-owned farmlands and white-owned businesses. Whites, historically, you can look at the history for yourself, lobbied and restricted property and citizen rights to Japanese immigrants coming in. They did that previously to Chinese immigrants. The, the history is all there for you to study. And that racial history is absolutely deplorable, unchristian, and sad. So, so that, that's the context. And then you get up to, to the World War II, and... There, here comes the attack of Pearl Harbor in 1941 in the midst of World War II when the Imperial Japanese Navy Air Service attacked our country. And with racial tensions already high in North America and with these, these suspicions of those people over there, that just fueled the fire of that. Many feared that Japanese American citizens would act as spies and saboteurs. They, 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 were, they were here, but they were a part of the empire of Japan, you see. And that fear, that fear... Not based on actual evidence, but, but that, that fear led to the United States government placing over 127,000 Japanese-American citizens in concentration camps during the war. In, in, in ethnic enclaves of the Pacific Coast, including Los Angeles, evacuation orders were posted around towns and on properties for Japanese-Americans uh, to, to go to internment camps. And you see the posters, you hear the news like, Wait, they're scared of us? We're citizens. What are you talking about? 
What are we going to do? We've got to go to internment camps? And so many sold their homes, they sold their cars, they sold their businesses, they sold their assets. They, they, they rushed to store their money inside of safe places if they could get it in, in a bank that wasn't segregated. Uh, and they lost a ton in that. Property was sold at a fraction of its true value while people were taking advantage of the situation. Not to mention the many who, who lost their homes altogether when they were land grabbed while they were inside of these camps. Imagine being targeted that way because of your ethnicity. Imagine losing everything. The Japanese went from successful businesses and warm homes to camps, to cold camps that were surrounded by barbed wire fences with patrolled armed guards who were given orders to shoot anyone who tried to leave. Now that modern example hopefully helps us enter into the dark season that fell upon Israel. Who are these people? Saboteurs? Spies? They're, they're not here for the good of the nation. Well, if you knew Joseph, you knew that. You knew God's people are always working for the good of the place in which they dwell. Whether we've got pagans over us, dumb pagan laws over us, God's people have been commanded by God to seek the good of the place in which we're in. Why would you think that? Well, he doesn't know. He doesn't know of Joseph. He doesn't know of what the people have done. And worse than internment camps, he places them in slavery for a period of over 400 years, which brings us to point two on the outline. We move from sovereignty and the people to slaves and the Pharaoh. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 11. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. Uh, here we read of the oppression of the Pharaoh. Uh, by the way, the term Pharaoh is a title. It's not a name. It's a title that was used for monarchs or theocrats in ancient Egypt. From the first dynasty of Egypt, approximately 3150 B.C., all the way up to the invasion of Egypt with the Roman Empire in 30 B.C. So that was the title that was used in that era. During the reign of the pharaohs, the pharaohs controlled everything. Their, 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 lands, their lands were theirs. Everything in Egypt, that belongs to the, the pharaoh. Our concept of like property and stuff, yeah, yeah, no. Free markets, property, yeah, get, no. It all belongs to the pharaoh. The laws, the taxes, the power, all of that, that, that comes with the pharaoh. Freedom itself, yeah, no, that, that belongs to the pharaoh. The people were the possession of the pharaoh. They were under the power of the pharaoh. Along with being political and a military ruler over the people, the pharaohs were also viewed as divine figures. They were viewed as semi-gods, intermediaries between uh, the people and the pantheon of the Egyptian pagan gods. They were kings and they were also high priests. They were in charge of the religion of the land, and uh, spiritually, they were believed to maintain what is known as ma'at, which is cosmic order. Uh, that, that ma'at was the balancing of society for the flourishing of the pharaoh and the monarchical theocracy. So apparently, the pharaoh was a little worried about his ma'at going on. And, in, 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 you know, it's like, hey, what's going on with these guys over there? They're threatening my ma'at, my power. We've got to do something to them. And so we're going to toss them into slavery. Verse 11, so they appointed taskmasters to afflict them with hard labor. This is harsh oppression. In verse 14, we will see that they were forced to make bricks for building projects, which is grueling work, as well as uh, being forced to work as field slaves in the fields. They're, they're going to become field slaves. They're slaves. This is horrible. And of course, this sort of oppression continues in our day. We mustn't look at slavery and think it's a thing of the past. This, this continues today, this forcing of labor. It continues even in the land of the free and the home of the brave here in the United States of America. 
With the Super Bowl coming up, we have various justice groups and law enforcement that are working right now as an example of this to raise awareness around what has become a major human trafficking slavery event in our country with out-of-towners who descend on an area, they stay in hotels, they engage in all sorts of sordid behavior that I won't say. Last year at the Super Bowl, there were over 70 people arrested in stings combating slavery and human trafficking. Beyond the big games and the obvious places like brothels where we, we might not be surprised to see slavery alive, there are also farms and fisheries in our country that are known for slavery. Law enforcement groups report, and I quote, victims of labor trafficking have been found among the nation's migrant and seasonal farm workers, including men, women, families, and children as young as five and six years old who harvest crops, raise animals in the field, packing plants, orchards, and nurseries, end quote. We might not have a pharaoh over us in terms of our government, depending on what, you, well, you might think we do, uh, but, uh, you know, you, you look at this, and you go, man, like, we still have little pharaohs running around doing wickedness in, in the land and through the lands of the earth. We still, we still have slavery. We still have this kind of oppression. We look back, of course, in the history of our nation and think of presidents who owned slaves and politicians who fought to protect the wicked institution of slavery in this country, which led to civil war and the aftermath of great bloodshed and, and, and hatred. But thankfully, we've come quite a ways, haven't we? But still, it, when it comes to slavery, we still see this going on. There's work to be done. The Pharaoh of Egypt was, was doing this. He was doing it boldly in the light. It continues in our day sort of in the darkness behind closed doors, but he's doing it boldly in the light. His oppression campaign was visible for all to see. It's in your face. This is Nazi Germany. This is the Holocaust. It's demonic. It's dreadful what we're reading in Exodus chapter 1. And with all the forces seeking to crush the people, it did not win. Look at verse 12. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread out, the more they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field and all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Now recall the Abrahamic covenant, the progeny promise, right? Notice the text is emphasizing that the progeny promise is still coming to fruition. No, no suffering is going to stop this. This brings home an important lesson to us all. Listen, listen. It is futile to resist God. It's futile to fight with God. It's absolutely futile. He cannot and thus will not ever be thwarted in his will. As Job recognized when he proclaimed in Job 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The Pharaoh thought that he was going to do something. He doesn't realize that he's actually fighting with God. And so, so while he thinks he's going he's to accomplish something, he's just going to get a big old plate of nothing. He's not even going to get a mayonnaise sandwich. He has no bread. He's going to get nothing out of, this, uh, out of this campaign that he has going on. Again, hear this important lesson, church. It is futile to fight against God. Now, we, we can say amen to that. Amen, it's futile to fight against God. But we need to be honest with ourselves because we often live like little pharaohs, routinely attempting to escape the providence of God. We, we, we impatiently try to speed things up. We try to speed up our, our own sanctification and God's timeline of things. And not to mention, we repeatedly break God's law, don't we? we? We come under His discipline. He's a loving Father, but we respond like spoiled children, don't we? We forget that we're far better than we deserve. We forget that we deserve death. We don't deserve discipline, the discipline of a loving Father. 
We deserve the wrath of a righteous judge, and, and yet look at us, and, and look at him, and look at his goodness, church. The wages of sin is death. No, there's not a person in here who hasn't made it through the week that just passed unscathed from sin. First John uh, chapter 1, verse 8 and verse 10 remind us that if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The word of God reveals our sin. As a minister of the word standing before you today, it is, it is my duty to call this out, to call you graciously, respond to him in repentance, for you to hear his law, for you to see a character like Pharaoh and, and, and not have the text turned into some account of those being the bad guys, but see, look, I would be there too. To, for you to hear God's law, for you to see God's holiness, and, and for you to understand your unholiness, my unholiness, I would be a derelict as a preacher you didn't hear me talk about this today, and every Sunday for that matter. I've, I've failed to serve. I've failed to love. I've, I've, I haven't come through the week unscathed. I, I, I need to hear this. I need to hear the weight and the reality of my sin and be reminded of what I deserve, but be reminded of the one who came and took it for me, Christ, that eternal God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, the Father sent the Son to stand in my place and your place for his people and take the condemnation that we deserve. And he lifts that. And he lovingly calls you, I paid it for you. I love you. Be set free. Come to me. Confess your sins. I will, I will forgive you. In fact, we just, I, I just quoted to you 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10. What's in between 8 and 10 is verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord, church. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This isn't something to put off for tomorrow. This is, oh, I'm going to start my, the diet on Monday. No, 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 no. You need to start today. You need to come to him and be forgiven today. In his forgiveness, you will find freedom. You know, with the text about a wicked pharaoh and slavery in front of us, it is worth noting that in the Bible, salvation is described as freedom, as abolition. And sin, on the other hand, is described as slavery. Both Jesus in John 8, 34, and the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, 16, they describe sin as slavery and being trapped in these deeds. I, I'm trapped in these deeds of darkness. Uh, now, the modern man wants to say, well, I'm a good person. And typically with that, they have in their mind sort of a scale that if you're more good than bad, you know, you're going to work things out with God. But the problem with this is that's not the way that law works. The law presumes obedience. You don't get rewarded for doing what you ought to do. The law presumes what you ought to do, you, you ought to do. That's just the nature of law. But you come under the wrath of the law when you fail to do what you ought to do when you go against it. And this is why, and you hear me give this illustration enough if you've been around the church, that if I murdered someone, I can't stand before the judge and say, Your Honor, think of all the people that I haven't killed. And the judge would say, Well, you know, well, your goodness outweighs your badness when I think about all the people that you have not killed. No, the law presumes that you don't kill people. That's how that works. But when you violate the law, now you come under the penalty of it, and there's nothing that you can do to remedy that. You can't bring that life back. You can't solve that sin that you have done. Now, I use an example like murder because our moral conscience, uh, hopefully, we can all go, yeah, that's bad. But if I use something like lying or gossiping, uh, watching pornography, 
uh, being lazy, being a glutton, so on and so forth. You know, that, that's where people can, well, you know, you know, and they start hemming and hawing. But the fact of the matter is those sins are as bad as taking the life of an innocent person. And so we, we all come, again, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. You, you need to hear God's law. You need to respond to God's law. Don't be self-deceived. I fall short of His law. Now hear of the one who obeyed His law perfectly, the Son who was incarnated as a man, who lived a life under the law for you, who died under the wrath of the law for you so that you can be set free. Those deeds that you're trapped in, He sets you free from those. In the book of Revelation, we read about the book of deeds on the final day of judgment where men are judged according to their deeds. Oh, that, that's a judgment that I don't want to be at. I, I don't want to face the things that I have done and will do. I, I don't want to be at that. In the book of Revelation, we also read of another book. It is the book of life. And in the book of life are, are written the names of those that have been sealed by the Son, those who have been rescued from those, those deeds. Their, their names are written in the book of life. And you could be written in that book, if you come to him and you seek him for forgiveness, now, even as I'm talking, cry out to him. He's, he's mighty to save and to forgive you and to place you in this book of life. And have your name in there. Now, speaking of names, as we continue reading, we read some interesting names. We read of uh, Sifra and Pu'ah. Draw your eyes at the text in verse 15. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. One of them was named Sifra and the other was named Pu'ah. Uh, the Pharaoh is determined in his fight against the Lord. Uh, he, he, he might not know it. He has a conscience placed in, in him by the Creator that stands against him, but he's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, seeking to justify his behavior. We can imagine him thinking, I'm just protecting my people. You know, I mean, these guys over there, they're threatening the stability. I'm protecting my people. We've got to get those people. I'm just, you know, I'm being a good person here. What are you, what are you talking about? What I'm doing isn't bad, enslaving them. I'm just, I'm just protecting the people. You, you might think, you know, I, I'm, I'm a pharaoh. You know, I, I serve the gods, and the gods have placed me here to keep the people safe, you know, to maintain my ot. I'm just maintaining my ot. Get off of my back. You know, these, these people here, they, you know, they're religious. Those, those Israelites, they are religious, and you know religion is dangerous. I'm the pharaoh. You know, I'm just a spiritual guy. I'm just trying to help, you know. The, I, you know, what are you talking about? You know, he might be justifying this. Now, now speaking of, of help, he goes to these Jewish or these midwives, and uh, the Hebrew midwives, and he tries to, to find out what the deal is. Hey, why are they increasing so much? Some scholars estimate that the Jewish people are around a couple of million people at this point, and so it stands to reason that there were hundreds of thousands of midwives who were overseers in a, in a, in a, in a profession and a skill of midwifery. They are seasoned in a cultural structure of power and influence, these midwives, to to make sure that they're taking care and using their influence and their position of power to care for uh, women who are pregnant with child and to make sure these babies are safe. This is their, their sort of health care system that they have going on. And so he, he calls for them, the Pharaoh does, and he wants to know, what's the 411, hun? What's going on here? Why are there so many of them? His systemic injustice campaign isn't working. He wants to know why. He, he, he asks, you know, hey, uh, what's going on, Sifra, Pu'ah, what, what's going on? Now, he shouldn't be asking Sifra and Pu'ah. He should be asking the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Instead of seeking mortal minds, he should have cried out to the immortal God and sought him. But alas, he's in darkness. Speaking in darkness, speaking of darkness, his name, it's left in the dark. Did you notice that? 
We get Sifra and Puah, but we don't know who this Pharaoh is. We just get the title Pharaoh. This is a way of shaming someone in the ancient world. You make them nameless. The text doesn't name him, but the text names the midwives. That's a powerful a literary rhetorical device here. The women are honored in the story. They are named. Though oppressed by an earthly king, they are exalted by a heavenly king. Along with being favored by God, they are used by God. Oh, the joy of being used by God, church, for his purposes and not ours. As we continue the text, we see this. Draw your eyes at, at verse 16. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and you see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put them to death. But if it is a daughter, then you shall live, the text says. The Pharaoh is ruthless. Did you, did you read that? Did you see that in the text? You got your Bible open, you see that in the text? He, he wants him to start murdering uh, babies to weaken the people, to make them defenseless. He wants to get rid of the men. He wants to get rid of the protectors and the providers and the priests. That way he'll cripple the people. The kingdom of darkness is no fool in this regard. Kill the men. And then you get the women and the children. We can say that Satan uses this tactic today in our culture, marginalizing manhood and sowing death among men. You know that men account for over 80% of the persons arrested for violent crime in our culture? Over 62% of those who are arrested for property crimes, they're men. In the Western world, males die by suicide uh, four times as much as females. Men have a target on their heads in our culture. And the culture will celebrate men being boys. Peter Pan syndrome, little mama's boys who, who can't take responsibility, who can't lead courageously, who, who don't live, who don't serve, who don't earn, who don't provide. The devil may be a fool, but not in this area. You get the men, you will win. Back to the text, the Pharaoh is a coward. He's targeting not the men, but the babies. That way he knows I can snuff them out. I can't get the big boys, but I'll snuff them out, and then eventually I'll have my way. He's a racist baby murderer, a, a bloodthirsty man who deserves to be nameless just as he's left in the text of God's holy word. In fact, in our culture, we often do this with terrorists and mass shooters. You'll see this on the news. There'll be a school shooting or something like that. And a, a lot of groups, and I love it when they do this, they will not name the shooter. They won't put the picture up when it's happening. They refrain from this because the twisted darkness often does these things so as to be named. We're not going to name them. We're going to leave them in the dark. That's where they deserve to be. Because the Pharaoh is nameless, scholars, of course, we wrestle with which Pharaoh is this. Could have been Ram, uh, Ramses. It could have been Amenhotep II or Neferhotep I. Much less probably, but it could have been Tutankhamun. Uh, while there might not be enough evidence in the text to identify the ruler, there's ample evidence and, and reason of historicity of these events, so we believe the events are historical, but, but notice how they're left out. That's intentional. But, it, but the struggle is a real historical struggle, which brings us to the next point on the outline, struggling and powers. The midwives are struggling with the Pharaoh. He wants to task them, because they're overseers with influence and power in this kind of healthcare system or structure, uh, for the people. He wants them to use their guild of midwives to start killing babies. Uh, disobeying a pharaoh would cost one's life, and so they resist him, however. Draw your eyes back at the text. Please look at it. The midwives, verse 17, feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but they let the boys live. Sifra and Puah are struggling against a dark overlord in much more than civil disobedience. This is spiritual warfare against wicked powers. 
The Apostle Paul taught us, I'll put it in front of you, Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers, against world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. You see, there are forces of darkness that are at work. The devil is in the details. You look at the powers and the politicians and the systems and the institutions and all of that, the devil's moving in this. And so, so the Apostle Paul says, be strong in the Lord. He prefaces Telling, telling us, look, the struggle is a spiritual struggle, and so be strong in the Lord. In His might, put on the armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Again, the devil's in the details. John 8, 44, Jesus spoke of the, the devil as a murderer from the beginning. What does the Pharaoh want to do? He wants to murder babies. This is demonic. Sifra uh, and Puah, they do not obey Pharaoh. They resist his power. It reminds me of the apostles when the powers of Rome told them that they couldn't proclaim the good news of Christ. And Peter and, and, and the apostles, they said, we must obey God rather than men. The government overstepped itself by going against the command of God. Understand, I, I said earlier that, that the Bible has a high view of God's people having a calling where they live to seek the good of the place they live in. That, that's a biblical principle. As well, understand we have texts like Romans 13 that tell us flat out to submit to our government. We're called to do that. Not just when it agrees with what we want to do or, or when it agrees with our understanding of this or that. We're called to submit to them. But when the man tries to contradict the creator, we're bound to a higher power. And the midwives acknowledge this. We're bound to God. And God blessed them for it. Look at verse 20. God was good to the midwives. Now, mind you, while he was good, there's still a struggle. There's still danger. There's still, there's still this go thing going on. They're risking their lives for doing this. Draw your eyes at the text in verse 18. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives, and he said to them, Why have you done this thing, and, you, and you've let the boys live? And, the, and, you know, you'd be shaking in your boots. This dude's going to kill us. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, uh, Because the Hebrew women are not as Egyptian women, they are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife can get them. You know, that, that, that's why. Now, this is a really interesting thing for Bible and critics of the Bible, because they'll say, it sounds to me like the midwives are lying. I thought God wasn't okay with lying, you know. Uh, the Bible's contradicting itself. And you say, no, the Bible's clear that lying is wrong. We're commanded by God not to lie. We're further commanded to tell the truth. Now, speaking of Scripture, the text doesn't say that they lied. Uh, rather than volunteering everything that was going on to the enemy who's slaughtering babies, they shifted the conversation to a play into something that would uh, sort of attract the tyrannical king. They start talking about how the Jewish women are different from the Egyptian women. Uh, the text here says they are vigorous. It's a, it's, this word here is what we call a hapax legomenon. It's the only place the word appears in the Hebrew Bible, so it's a tough one to translate because you can't go to other texts to help you understand the meaning. Suffice it to say, the word vigorous, hayah, uh, that it's a word that means like lively or alive or... Uh, you know, uh, full of life. I, I'm not quite sure why our translation chose vigorous here, but haya means lively or full of life. But further, here's an interesting tip point for you. Haya is a derivative of heva. You can hear those sound a lot alike, haya, heva. Heva means a beast or an animal. Uh, in which case, this is an interesting thing here, follow me. They could be playing on the ethnocentrism of the tyrannical king. Or he's like, hey, man, what's going on? Why don't you guys stop it? Well, you know the, you know, the, the Hebrew ladies, you know, they're, they're hewa. They're like animals. They just pop them out or whatever. They're not like the Egyptians, you know. 
So they sort of play on his ethnocentrism so as to sort of distract the conversation. They go, oh yeah. Now it's interesting to note that while earlier we read that the, the Hebrew midwives, we don't know from the text per se that these are midwives assigned to the Hebrews, perhaps by the Egyptian government, or if they themselves are actually Jewish. The text isn't entirely clear. They have names with Semitic roots, so we lean on thinking that they're Jewish women. But if that's not the case, it would even be further interesting if these are Egyptian employees of the king, and there you see their ethnocentrism coming out like, well, they're popping out because they're not actually doing their jobs at midwives. They don't really care about the Jewish people. They don't want to go down there. They don't want to be in labor with them. They're, they're above them. They're better than them. Well, they're popping out the babies. You know them. And, it, and there could be some sort of a racial or ethnocentric slur here. And this, uh, you know, they're vigorous. They pop them out. You know, they're not like us. And so verse 20, God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and they became very mighty. And the midwives feared God and he established households for them. So it's clear God's blessing them. God, God is not, doesn't bless our sin. You know, the text doesn't show us that they're lying. Now, let me pause for a second uh, you know, uh, and, and say something that's important here. I was drawn to this text because of something that is significant today. Uh, what's significant today is the Sanctity of Life Sunday. It falls on the weekend around the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. This was recognized by a presidential proclamation in 1984 in hopes of awakening the consciousness of our country to see what's at stake, innocent life and the killing of babies. And this is a text about killing of babies. I thought, let me exposit this text, and then I'll make a quick pause and say something about this, and then we'll, we'll wrap the sermon up. On January 22, 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled 72 in Roe v. Wade in full support of abortion. That is the legalized uh, infanticide of, 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 of babies in our country. It makes it legal to take the life of a child in the womb. Roe v. Wade changed the course of American history. It has taken the lives of an estimated 62 million since 1973. The, let me say this, I'm not getting political. This is not a political matter. And even if it were, thoughtful Christians, we engage politics. Jesus owns all domains. Uh, Christians can do politics for Pete's sake, but that's not what I'm doing in the pulpit here. This is a moral issue. This is further is not about women's rights or personal choice. I am enthusiastically pro-choice when it comes uh, to women's rights. I, I have daughters. This isn't about women choosing moral goods, uh, uh, women choosing a spouse or not a spouse, a job or not a job, choosing who's going to be your doctor or whether or not you're even going to go to the doctor or choosing a president or choosing a religion. While I have opinions about which religion you choose in particular, I have thoughts on good doctors as well as good presidents and, and good jobs, and I, I have thoughts on who's marriage material, but, you know, whatever, that's your choice. But choosing to end an innocent life is not a choice that ought to be made legal. That's a different matter entirely. This isn't a matter of choice or women's rights. We recognize this with all humans, save for babies in the wombs. Folk, folks ignorantly argue that babies in the womb are not human or person. They will say that it's uh, different, you know, for me to say, it's, you know, killing a four-month-old is, is horrible, but they'll say it's different to kill a four-month-old outside of the womb as, a poor, as opposed to a four-month-old inside of the womb. However, I would say it's not different. Scientifically speaking, both are human lives. A, a four-month-old human outside of the womb and inside are both human lives. Scientifically speaking, inside of the womb, at the moment of conception, you have a living human being. It's growing, developing, responding, functioning. It's burning food, oxygen. It's giving off waste products. Its cells are reproducing. These are the properties of a living being. It's a life. 
Uh, the, you know, people will argue. They'll say, well, no one knows when life begins. That is not true. If you it, just take a basic science class, in the process of reproduction of any living being, there is no beginning of life in general because there's no period of non-life in the entire sequence of events from mating to birth. The mother and father are alive. The individual sperm and egg are alive. The zygote formed from their union is alive. The developing fetus is alive. And by the way, when people say, well, that's a fetus, it's not a baby, you, go, you clearly didn't study Latin in school because fetus means baby, it means child. During the entire term, the child delivered at birth has been alive the entire term. There's, it's nonsense to say we don't know when life begins. From beginning to end, there is an unbroken continuum of life. Life does not begin at some stage of development. The, un the unborn is alive at every stage. The fact that a fetus is growing biologically, it's alive. The biological growth, is, it, it, sh it shows it, it proves it. Those who say, well, they'll say, okay, it's alive, but it's not human. What are you talking about? The offspring of two human beings is human. How could you have two human beings making a living thing that, that's not human? The baby in, in the womb is a human because it comes from the offspring of two humans. That's a human. Well, they say, oh, oh but you know, uh, you know, you gotta have, a, it's her body, it's the mother's body. She should have a right to do what she wants to do with her body. Uh, absolutely, you can, you know, you wanna get earrings or tattoos or I don't know, gold teeth, knock yourself out, do whatever you wanna do with your body, but this is not your body, this is a separate, individual body. It's a separate thing from the mother. Of course, from the father, it just happens to be domiciled in the mother's womb just for a season, but it's not the mother's body. It has its own unique genetic code. It has its own unique fingerprints. It has its own unique organs. It is a separate body. It's my body. Do you have four ears and four eyes and two kidneys? I mean, what are you, what are you talking about? That's a separate body. Having, having determined as a matter of fact that the unborn is a human being, uh, then those who say, who say that, you know, Oh, you know, you can do what you want. No, no, no. If it's a human, under the law, they should be protected. Unborn, unborn human beings should be treated like any other human when facing life and death ethical question. The unborn deserves the same protections as a two-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 90-year-old. Age is not a relevant factor. Furthermore, size is not a relevant factor. People will say, well, the baby's tiny. So what? Uh, human embryos are smaller than newborns and adults, but so what? Are you saying that bigger people are more human than smaller people? That's absurd. Size doesn't equal value. On average, men are bigger than women. Uh, we have, uh, does that mean men are more human than women or deserve more rights because they're bigger? No. Uh, we'll, oh, people will argue, well, babies in the womb are less developed. So what? Five-year-olds are less developed than 15-year-olds. Should we be able to kill five-year-olds? Uh, to flip the Bale example a moment ago, many scientists say girls develop faster than boys. So should girls have more rights than boys? Uh, or what do we do with the underdeveloped and the handicapped in that regard? Yeah, well, the life is still inside me, so I get to do what I want to do because it's inside me. The fact that the baby is using the mom's body to live doesn't mean that you can kill it. Conjoined twins use, use a body to live. If a conjoined twin just grabbed a knife and stabbed the other twin in the head, you, you wouldn't say, well, you know, that, you know, I mean, it's his body. No, 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 the fact that you're using that body for life doesn't give you the, the the prerogative to be able to kill the other. Yeah, well, it's still in me, I get to choose. You might be able to choose under current law, but what is legal and what is right are not the same thing. The law lets us do all sorts of things that are evil. I can sleep around on my wife and, 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 and keep it a secret or whatever, that doesn't make it okay. I can choose not to be a good dad to my kids, that doesn't make it okay. 
But the law allows me those luxuries of wickedness. So we must point out, look, just because it's legal doesn't make it right. And as believers, on a weekend like this, we, we pause and we lament and we pray and we try to help equip the church to engage in conversation with this. Notice that in this little soapbox here, I haven't appealed to scripture. I haven't, I've just used science as a basic argument and appealed to just common sense intuitions about jurisprudence and science. And these ought to be things that we're doing. Now, back to the text. We're in a text that's about life and we see the wickedness of it. And in this dark hour, we see salvation and promise. The final point on your outline. As you get into the second chapter of Exodus, for sake of time, I won't read, but you can look at this. And you read the account, the origins account of Moshe, Moses. And as babies are being slaughtered, uh, Moses' parents, his mother in particular, she wants to spare his life. She places him in a basket and she sets him into the Nile River. She risks his life, but she entrusts the hand of the Lord. She seeks the Lord on this. And here you have this life being placed there and the parents being removed. It's, a, it's an amazing scene where you see this child being placed, these parents sacrificing and saying, we don't know what's going to happen. We're without hope. They're going to kill the babies. What are we going to do? They place the child in the Nile. Uh, babies don't swim. That could go bad. There's creatures in the Nile. He could be eaten. This is very dangerous. But they don't know what to do. They place the child there. In the recent uh, uh, Mandalorian series, you know, we're trying to find out, who's this Mandalorian guy? You get to see the account of how he was orphaned on another planet during the Clone Wars when a, a, a separatist battle droids, you know, kill his parents. And his parents place him in this little pod and they go, everyone's going to die. And they place him in this little pod, you know, to save his life. And he's adopted as a foundling and raised with the creed. He becomes a Mandalore or whatever. It's a story like that. You know, here's this little baby. We don't know what to do. People are dying. They place him in the river. Now, if you look at, at verse 5 through verse 10, you see the daughter of the Pharaoh in verse 5. Actually, the, the, the basket finds its way to her. And there you see the providence of God and all of the suffering. Moshe will go into the house of the Pharaoh. The very man, the very man who wants him dead, he goes into the house of the Pharaoh and he is raised in the Egyptian court. And all of that suffering is used, as I said in the beginning. Why are God's people suffering? It's all a part of his plan to bring redemption. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, the Bible commends the father and the mother of, of Moshe, of Moses, for trusting God. What a scary event. What a horrible season to live through. They, they become slaves and they're slaughtering babies. You know, according to the Talmud, which is an, a, an important collection of Jewish writings that reflect on the Hebrew Bible, the Talmud writes about these astrologers who warned the Pharaoh that a savior was about to be born. And the Talmud talks about the, the Pharaoh wanting to kill the babies, not just out of the fear of the size of them and that ethnocentric, they're going to take us over thing, but also that the Pharaoh believed there was a savior that had come to the people and he wanted to snuff them out. This reminds us, of course, of the story of Jesus and Herod who, who heard the word from the, the Magi, the Magi, that one had come and they wanted to snuff him out. We know that story. Moses becomes a type of a savior in the text of the Hebrew Bible who will be raised up to rescue his people. He'll be like Joseph. He'll rise up and take a place of influence by God's hand, not man's influence, by God's hand. And he would deliver, he would save the people. Moses becomes a, a type in scripture that points to a greater Moses. There's no doubt that Moses is a picture of our Savior who we celebrate this day. In the New Testament, you see this very, very clearly. And you see highlights of this as well in the writings of Moses. Let me put it in front of you, Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God, Moses said, 
will raise up a prophet like me among you, the Jewish people, from your countrymen, and you will listen to him. You think of the parallels. Both of them were born at a time when Israel was under foreign occupation and domination. Both had rulers that tried to kill them at their births. Both spent time in the wilderness before taking their callings. Both fasted for 40 days. Both were shepherds and teachers and prophets. Both were used uh, for, for great miracles of deliverance. The similarities in the typology and the shadows are huge. I'm trying to end the sermon. It's too long already, so I can't get into it. Forget about the similarities. Let me say this to you. What's huger than the similarities are the differences. Moses is a sinner who has blood on his hands. Christ is pure. His hands are clean. And he takes his clean hands and he hangs on the cross and his blood oozes out in order to deliver his people from the ultimate bondage of slavery to sin and to death. Moses will lead the people in Passover. They will be given the bread. Moses leads the people through the Red Sea, through the waters. The bread and the waters become pictures in Scripture of our communion and our baptism, and they all point to the Christ. Moses saw the first Passover. Jesus is the Passover. Would you take the cup? Hopefully you received one, you walked in. If not, grab one. And think of the Passover. Think of the bread provided to Israel to give them nourishment as these slaves had been rescued, had been literally rescued from bondage. And this bread was a, a reminder to them of God's faithfulness to Abraham. A faithfulness that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the people didn't have coming. It was because of his love, because of his mercy. And the bread of the Passover was a bread that didn't have leaven in it because he rescued them so quickly. In Scripture, leaven is often used as a metaphor for sin. The bread that you will eat will be free from this. I'm rescuing you. I'm cleansing you. I'll bring you through the waters. I'm going to wash you. I'm going to give you my law in the wilderness. I'm going to bring you to the land in spite of yourselves. I'm doing all of this. And the bread reminds us of our good and gracious God who does these things for us. Let's eat. We take the cup. We think of Joseph who said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We think of the apostle who said, God uses all things for the good. We think of that question that I began with. If these are God's people, why are they suffering? If that is God's son in the flesh, why does he hang on the cross? Why does he bleed out for us? Because God is love. Because God is holy. A sacrifice had to be given. We couldn't make that sacrifice. We couldn't make the sacrifice. We're soiled. We can't be that sacrifice. And the Father sent the Son to be that sacrifice for us. Through many dangers and toils and snares, he lived his life. He suffered. He suffered. He suffered. In our place, brothers and sisters. Let's drink the cup and give thanks for what he has done. We stepped into Exodus. I shared with you about Genesis, the fall of creation in disarray. This cup looks forward to the restoration of creation. The people of Israel look forward to it. Christ came. The church was born. We continue to look forward to this. The renewal of Israel, the resurrection of the dead, the restoration of the earth. This, this cup is the down payment on this. 
You know, you, you put a down payment on something. I mean, it's good. It's good. This is going to happen. This cup is the down payment. So let's pray and let's sing and let's rejoice that the payment has been paid and his resurrection secures that the payment took and that we have every hope in him who has come and that all who hear this message, you can be redeemed, you can be saved, you can know his love this day. Let's cry out to him. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we confess our sins as well corporately. We confess the sins of your people, the church in this country that has fallen into shenanigans and all sorts of things besides heralding you, the church in North America that has given itself to entertainment, that can barely hang on to a 20-minute message that's talking about ourselves, let alone a, a long message heralding you and what you have done. Lord, we pray that you would make your people in North America hungry to hear your word, that they would no longer tolerate uh, the games that are being done uh, in, in, in the name of teaching your word, in the name of church. And Lord, we, we ask for your mercy upon us, your favor upon us here at Delray Church, that we would continue in proclaiming you and continue in uplifting your law and calling people to repentance in response to the good news that has come. Lord, we, we, we cry out not only for forgiveness for ourselves individually, for the church corporately, but Lord, for our nation on this uh, day of Right to Life Sunday, Lord, where we think of uh, over 60, all these lives, Lord, just slaughtered and, and lost. Uh, Father, I, I, I pray that you would bring a revival. Uh, Lord, I pray that your common graces would prevail. Lord, just as the sin of slavery stained this nation, uh, the sin of racism stained this nation, but we've, we've gotten to a place where, Lord, a large number of people can look at that and say, yeah, racism is bad. Slavery was bad. We should have. It was legal, but it wasn't right. Oh, Lord, that this nation would come as we have come to see slavery, that we would see abortion this way, and that we would rise up and protect the least of these among us. And, Lord, we pray not only for jurisprudence in this regard, but we pray, uh, Lord, for just your common graces in, in those who have, who have made this decision. For, for moms hearing this who carry uh, loss and, and at times wrestle with guilt, Lord, that your gospel would, would lift that, that there's forgiveness for all that we have done in you. Moses himself was a murderer, and you offer forgiveness for, for all. In fact, Roe, Lord, you, you forgave Roe and Roe versus Wade and saved her, and she became a Christian, and now she's with you. God, we, we pray, Lord, not just for laws to change, but for hearts to change. Lord, change hearts and burden us, Lord, for, for life, not just in the womb, but all the way to the tomb. The things that, that babies and families need, Lord, that we would be a charitable people who would give and serve and help, Lord. Move among us. Receive these final songs of worship, Lord, now as we stand and we cry out to you and we sing to you, Lord. I pray that you would move in this time of song to draw us to you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.